number of giving stories I could tell you this morning. I tried to say something. I've been trying to do this throughout the pandemic to, to inspire you to obey God in giving. But one of the things that I want to say this morning is we, we've, been, we've been able to help everybody in our church who for some unfortunate reason has needed financial help during the pandemic. And I'm really glad that's true, but I also want to make sure that every single one of you knows this. Just as when God is, is blessing you and things are going well and the good providence is moving in your life, you, um, you have money to give to, and share with others, right? It is also true that it is a spiritual discipline to ask for help when necessary and that the church exists to help its brothers and sisters. Does that make sense? And so if you end up in a place where you really do need help, and there isn't a way to get help, and there's no way to get help from your family. Um, we are your larger family. And so the, here's what I hate here. When we give tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars this year outside of the church, and then I find out there was somebody, there's like a single mom who's really struggling, and she's, she's just dying under the weight, and she won't ask for help because she feels like it'll either be embarrassing or we won't want to give or whatever. It's a privilege for us to give to you. Do you understand? We love helping our family. So just—you need to know that. If, if you're doing what you can, and you can't make it, that's why we have—that's why we give to help each other, okay? So if—and if you know someone in your small group or somebody in the church, and you know that they should be asking for help and they won't, then encourage them to do it, okay? Because um, we have—we've helped everybody who needs help, and we'll, we'll continue to do that because of the generosity of the family of God, okay? All right. All right, so we're jumping into a new series. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Romans 14. Um, we're going to go from sustaining unity into sustaining renewal. And this week, we're kind of still in both. Okay, we're starting the new one. We're ending the last one. And part of the reason why that makes sense is because if you look at the central verse in this passage, which I'm going to read in just a second, the apostle says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and is approved by men. And then he says this, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Edification means, an ed like a building, a fancy word for building is an edifice, right? It comes from older words that mean to build up. So edification just means to build something up, like you would build a building, right? To do something constructive. And so mutual edification is together with each other do things that build each other up, Right? And so you can see how that's the two series, right? One is we're trying to seek peace with one another. That's sustaining unity, right? Staying together in fractious times. And we're also supposed to be building each other up so that we can, we can experience sustained spiritual renewal instead of big spikes and then big valleys and big spikes and big valleys, which is, which is normal human experience. If you look through the scriptures, that's what human beings normally do, is they'll have like a revival because things were really bad. And then they'll be like, oh, we need to turn the ship around. And then things will go well, and God will start to bless them, and they'll take it for granted, and it'll go really bad. And one of the things that's very uncommon is for human beings to come together and have sustained spiritual renewal over a long period of time. Right? But it's possible if we do what God told us to do to experience it. Okay, let's read these verses. I'm going to start in verse 13. I'm going to read the English Standard Version just to give us a little bit different— way of hearing these verses. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. I know, and I am persuaded in the Lord, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. 
by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and is approved by men. Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to be judged, to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubt is condemned if he does eat, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I kind of tremble to try to preach on that in 20 minutes because there's a lot of nuance there and how that works with all these other Christian truths. Um, but I'm going to swing the bat and we'll see where the ball goes. Okay. Um, one of the reasons why we're focusing on spiritual disciplines while we're focusing on spiritual renewal is because doing the sort of things that Romans 14 is talking about, actually living in love, requires us to grow in mastery of all the virtues and disciplines in Christ, and to be able to do them at the proper time, know what the thing is, and to be able to execute it in a way that's appropriate for the moment. That's really hard. Love is the hardest thing in the world. People think it's easy. It's not easy. If love was easy, if it was so simple that it was easy, then the Apostle John would have been blaspheming when he said, God is love. The reason you can say God is love and that's not blasphemy is because love is all of the virtues tied together in the right way at the proper time with wisdom, discretion, prudence, giving to another what they truly need. It is, it is the embodiment of the character of God. And so you can say God is love because he completely embodies himself, his own character, that is always loving. And love is that rich and profound a category. Right? It's true that all the world, all the world needs is love. The thing that's silly is people think that if you say that, they also think love is easy because it's simple. But it's not. It's the hardest thing in the world. It requires maturity and unity and so on. And it requires, therefore, for us human beings to master it, spiritual discipline. That's why, just like he says, make every effort to pursue peace and mutual upbuilding, right? In Second Peter, Peter says, therefore, in order to pursue this in the gospel, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, goodness, knowledge. You guys have heard this a million times. It says in the book of Hebrews, he says, listen, anyone who lives on milk, what he means by milk is very simplistic teaching about Jesus. Anyone who lives on milk is, an, is a spiritual infant. They're not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. That is the more substantial and developed teaching about Christian faith, right? He says, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So what he's saying is, and listen, he includes a bunch of things. The gospel, the resurrection, our hope in, in the final return of Christ, um, the laying on of hands, baptism, all that stuff he considers part of infancy. Okay, and he, and he says, there is, there's this thing in Christian faith, which is the long practice of training ourselves to distinguish between what's really good and evil in the world and being able to apply it in real Christian life. And that is maturity. 
That's maturity. Not going to another Sunday school class and learning another thing about one of these elementary doctrines. It is through long, constant use and practice, training yourself to, in real life, be able to actually distinguish between good and evil, choose the good, and actually do it appropriate for the situation for the good of the other person. That is love. And in order for us to do that, going through a process of spiritual discipline is necessary. Figuring out what practices will build knowledge and wisdom and humility and meekness and kindness and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love, right? If, if you don't know what we normally teach at High Point about this, um, in my book, Substance, that you can get through the church, chapter 10 is all about spiritual discipline. But we'll have this emphasis over the next 10 weeks where we'll be going through a spiritual discipline each week. And this week, um, what they're going to be covering in the class is self-consecration, which could be called purity of heart. The, the, the Christian language for that is purity of heart. That your heart wants one thing. It is consecrated, set apart for God. Your whole self, right? And so I'm going to talk about that a little bit specifically in relationship to what Romans 14 is talking about. Now, um, when it comes to disagreements, so just to be clear, we're all on the same page. Romans 14 is about what happens when you who share a worldview, you, you who are, you're, you're both Christians, you're, you're trying to decide what to do about something that is consequential, something that matters. And as Christians, you think it through as Christians, and you come to the opposite conclusions, which lead to the opposite behavior. What do you do when your ally is thinking about something important, and they come to the opposite conclusion about what's right than you do, right? Now, what Paul says normally happens, what happens through spiritual indiscipline, is that the people with, with the weaker conscience who naturally think in more restrictive terms say, this is wrong and you shouldn't do it. And then when somebody who thinks that they're free to do it does it, they tend to judge them and say, you're a bad person for doing that. Judge in this context um, refers to premature condemnation. It doesn't—it's not the judgment or the discernment that you shouldn't do it. It is taking the right to prematurely condemn to the negative the person who does it. You're a bad person. You're a bad Christian. You're not really a Christian. Right. Condemnatory in nature. The person who believes they're free to do it, the person who thinks in freedom categories and says, I'm free to do this, tends to sense that judgment and tends to look back at that person with contempt. Like, who are you to judge me? You don't even know what you're talking about. You're not even right. You don't even understand the gospel, right? Which tends to lead to them feeding on each other, where the people who are already condemning them begin to then create a superstructure of rules, and then the rules prove them right because they made the rules to prove them right. And that's called legalism. Hey, you're not living up to all these rules, right? The people with freedom will be like, forget you. I'm going to do it all the more. I'm going to do it in your face. And I'm going to rub it in your face. And you're going to pay for trying to condemn me, right? That's called flaunting. And judging and flaunting and judging and flaunting and judging and flaunting. And it tends to lead to terrible rifts between people and people who really hate each other, who really don't believe that much differently from each other. Now remember, it's important to remember that the Apostle is talking about disputable matters or matters of judgment. He's not talking about direct commands of God, right? He's not talking about like whether or not it's good to commit adultery or like beat up on a baby, right? Like he's talking about stuff where you really could think through Christianly and come to different conclusions about it, right? Like for example, the example of, of eating meat in this. He's not just talking about whether or not it's cool to eat animals. I mean, you could apply it to that. But the focus in the New Testament is all, all animals— were sacrificed before pagan idols in Greco-Roman context. So everything, even meat you bought in the marketplace, that morning had been offered in the temple of Zeus or Hermes or something like that. So it was a temple sacrifice to a pagan god. So if you eat the meat, are you complicit 
in the system of idolatry and therefore complicit in affirming it even though it's idolatrous and against God. So should you not eat the meat? Or do you say everything's from God? Everything that's natural, that isn't corrupted in some way, is from God. And the fact that they killed the goat in front of the statue of Zeus doesn't make it Zeus's. It's always been God's, and it's God's now, and I can buy it, and I can have barbecue. And I'm freeing Christ to do it, because when I eat it, I'm not going to say, thank you, Zeus. When I eat it, I'm going to say, thank you, God. Right? And you see, the thing is, both of those are perfectly rational ways to think through what God might want and might be good from a Christian perspective. So what do you do when one person thinks the one and the other person thinks the other? Right? Instead of going through the cycle of judging and condemning, what spiritual discipline does is it restrains condemnation and contempt and therefore builds virtue instead of enmity. Right? Um, I, I showed you this graphic from Adam Avery's book, taking, Stop Taking Sides, how holding tension, holding truths in tension saves us from anxiety and outreach. It was a— um, uh, there's a, a magazine that gave an honorable mention for Accessible Theology Book of the Year for Christians. I think it deserves it. It's a really good book. In it, he basically says, there are all these truths in Christian faith that are in tension with one another, right? Depravity, that we're made in the image of God, right? And one of them is strong, weak. And he, 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 he argues in the book, he said, this tension of virtue between them is meekness. That when it comes to your— the way you use power relative to strong and weak faith— your willingness not to bring down the hammer on that other person, that is to be meek, is the virtue that you have to build. Right? If your faith is weaker, you think in more restrictive terms in this sense, and you want to judge that other person, you want to bring down the hammer, right? Meekness is to, is to wait, and maybe you shouldn't. And maybe you need to build up a virtue instead of being reactive about it in a way that may be selfish or maybe more closed-minded than you ought to be, or more judgmental, right? Maybe you should think about what that judgment is going to do to that other person, and whether or not it's legitimate, and so on. Maybe meekness will lead you to greater wisdom. And similarly, for the person who has freedom because they have stronger faith, instead of them bringing down the hammer of contempt on the other person, maybe you need to hold that back and wait and see why you really want to do it, and what you think it's really going to accomplish, and what it really says about you that you're ready to bring that hammer down. And what you'll find is, is that it says something bad about you, the way you're looking at things, the way you're feeling about things, the way you're thinking about yourself relative to another person, and therefore whether or not you're really doing it to the Lord, as it says over and over again in verses 1 to 14. Does that make sense? All right. <clears throat> the second verses from 14 and following talk about the same thing we talked about last week, that God's servants are yours to build up, not trip up, right? They're your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We are all different parts of the body together. We're one body under the head who is Christ, it says in Ephesians, right? And so the apostle says, therefore, listen, you, let's not pass judgment on one another. He says, but instead, even more, judge not to put a stumbling block before your brother nor a trap. That's a more literal translation. One of the things that the new translations miss is that Paul uses the word judge twice. And he's, he's doing a wordplay. He says, don't judge, that is prematurely condemn, but instead judge. Right? Meaning what? Use your judgment to decide how you should treat your brother or sister, which is to not put a stumbling block in front of them. What he's saying is, he's saying, listen, don't let the flesh hijack your capacity for discernment and make you judgmental. Instead, let the work of the Spirit work in a good conscience through faith 
so as to take your faculties for discernment, to use them to make a decision of what's best relative to loving your neighbor. That is, to decide never to put a stumbling block or trap in front of their feet relative to their faith. Relative to, and specifically relative to their faith, relative to their conscience. Okay, let's go through the two of these. One is don't trip up the weak. The truly strong see the impact of their freedom, right? Don't trip up the weak. There are folks that are going to look at things that you believe you're free to do in Jesus, and they're going to think that you shouldn't do them. And some of those things you're going to think are, are, are lunatic level, restrictive, and some of you are going to think, you're like, well, there's something to that, but you don't have the right to tell me what to do. Okay? One of the things that's interesting about High Point Church is that we are kind of the theologically conservative, like historically Christian, like full Bible sermons, right? But like trying to like, we're, we're kind of in this weird place. And what happens is we get a lot of recovering fundamentalists. Okay? At High Point Church. We get a lot of folks who are like in very restrictive, controlling, legalistic, fundamental churches. There's a lot of them in, in Wisconsin and in Madison, right? And people are like, ah, what am I doing living under this? This is killing me. But I believe in Jesus. I believe in the scriptures. I believe in the foundations of our faith. I believe in those fundamentals. I just don't believe in the legalistic part of fundamentalism. Where should I go to church? And they find us, right? And so they're recovering from that. But in a lot of ways, their conscience has been programmed by that in terms of their experience and their teaching, what they've heard. And so they may feel really—we have, we have people come to our church who think it's immoral to flirt. So if you're a young woman, you're single, you want a man to be interested in you, but you think that if you're feminine towards them at all, such as they would realize that they're a man in your presence, that that is lewd, immodest behavior, right? What ends up happening is you don't get asked out, and you don't get asked out a second time, and you don't get to go on dates. That's what ends up happening, Right? Like, you're supposed to flirt. Like, that's part of how people come together. Right? It's, and, but we live in such a lewd culture and people don't want to do that. And they don't want to cause their brother to sexually stumble or their sister. And so they have these ideas in their mind. We've had people come to church. I've had people ask me if it's okay for women to wear pants at High Point Church. And I go, are they going to be women's pants? Because <laughs> I don't want to be responsible to wear women's pants. Maybe you should do that, right? Like, like, probably most of you are like, are you kidding me? Listen, no, right? But listen, it's more than that, right? There's a controversy on planet Earth as to whether or not pigs are filthy animals. Do you know this? All over planet Earth, there's a controversy whether pigs are filthy animals, right? Huge swaths of the planet believe that to eat anything made out of pork fundamentally defiles you as a human human organism. Like, I've been told in no unsplicit— in no uncertain terms, when I go to certain parts of India, to never mention that I have touched or eaten any part of a pig or pig product. Because the idea that pigs are filthy animals and they're unclean and defiling is so fundamentally rooted in a lot of Indian culture, especially in rural areas and all, and all over the place, especially in Islamic culture, that if they know even that I've eaten bacon, that they, like, they can't even listen to me talk as a Christian, right? But at the same time, in a lot of poorer cultures throughout the world in which there were hard winters, like the American South, among all ethnicities, the hog was how you got through winter. You raised corn to feed to a hog, to smoke the hog, to eat during the winter so you didn't starve to death. And those people thought hogs were great. And they perfected bacon. 
And to tell those people they shouldn't eat pigs would have been crazy. But listen, there are people who will come to this church. They will immigrate to America. They're already here. They live in our neighborhoods. And they think some of the things that we eat are just disgustingly filthy. And to eat, for you just to eat them defiles you, right? What do you do? To them, it's serious. You might think, that's crazy. It's not crazy to them. And it has been crazy in their culture for like 3,000 years. What are you going to do? What are we going to do? It's real stuff, right? Some people think you should wear suits to church. I just wear one every three months just to mess with people. And I wear it wrong to mess with the other people. Right? There's some people who think, look, they think, think, listen, God loves you just as you are. The church is the house of God. Therefore, you should show up just as you are. And I know people who out of conscience and trying to teach people what the church really is, they wear their flip-flops and their most cut-off pants to church because they want everybody to know that you come just as you are. God loves you, right? And there's other people who are like, look, if you went to the president's house, you'd, you'd put on your Sunday best. You'd put on your nicest clothes and you'd go and you'd show respect for the person who you're going to. They're a very important person. Why wouldn't you do that for God? And that's just as rational. Both are argued directly from true Christian ideas, right? Listen, I don't care. I mean, I would love to see High Point where like one person's in like a Ron John t-shirt and the next guy's like in a suit. That would be awesome. If we could get like a surfer and somebody suited and booted right next to each other, like every week, that would be great. So long as they had the spiritual discipline not to judge each other and to respect and see why that person is doing that and realize that it's actually just as Christian in a disputable matter of judgment. Now, what that means is, is that what we're called to do, our real job as people called to love— remember, your theology is worthless if it doesn't produce love. It's not Christian. It's not of God, right? It might have a lot of true facts in it from, from God, but it's really easy to have a lot of things right and have it all wrong. Do you understand? And so what the apostle is saying is you shouldn't put a stumbling block in front of your brother. Now the word specifically that defines what that means is a word translated grief or distress. So in the NIV that we used to have on the pew, I think it's the word distressed. If your brother is distressed by what you eat, in the, in the ESV it's grieved. Um, first Corinthians, second Corinthians 7 is a great place to read that word is used relative to people's grief. What the word grief means in this context is that a stumbling block is an expression of your freedom that will likely cause destructive turmoil in another person's conscience. That's what it means. It means if you do that thing, it's predictable that it's going to create a kind of turmoil in their conscience that is likely to be destructive rather than productive in their faith in God. Either because they'll judge you and it'll draw them into legalism, or because they'll take from you that it's okay, even though they think it's wrong, and they'll act against their conscience. Right? Because if you think something is wrong, and this person does it out of Christian freedom, and you decide you can do it while you think it's wrong in your conscience, you are sinning. And, and it's not just that. It's, it's worse than that. The reason it says it's sin is because you're harming yourself. You're doing something you actually believe is wrong, and just saying it's fine because somebody else does it. Well, you can't live your life like that to God. Faith is fundamentally God making you honest with him so that you'll one day be honest with yourself. To see somebody else do something and they say it's okay with God, and then you do it because they do it, though you think it's wrong, ruins the entire cycle and prog progress of spiritual change. 
The whole purpose of spiritual change is you become honest with God, and God forces you to be honest with yourself, and then he shapes yourself so that you are conscientiously rightly related to him. And then you follow the law of love and spirit that flows in and through your conscience, which has now been rightly calibrated, which is never fully done being calibrated, but you must always listen to, right? And so if you do something that destroys that process by creating a kind of grief or distress, you can be ruining the entire work of God in another person. You could be destroying them, and you can be destroying God's work in them. Right? And ultimately, you're destroying God's reputation to those who have not yet even believed, allowing something that you believe is good to be spoken of as evil, right? Now, um, the applications of this in, um, in the passage is that if we see that lo- loving others who are weaker in faith and having our full freedom in Christ so that we can engage in stewardship in all the areas where we should have stewardship, right? We're living out both of those we're going to realize there's going to be a tension between those two. In Adam's book, he talks about um, being a missionary in Scotland. There's all kinds of alcoholism and abuse and drug abuse in his family. And so he thinks anybody who drinks alcohol is just the stupidest person in the world. Right? In his heart, he says. Right? And he's like, then I went to Scotland and I was ministering to young men. And young men in Scotland and Edinburgh only open up and talk about stuff in the pub. And so he went and he got a soda while they got beers to talk. And then all they talked about was his soda. And he realized he had to at least order a beer and probably drink some of it just to have these conversations. Because that was the fundamental culture there, right? Why? why? He, he needed to use his freedom relative to his calling to be a good steward of his ministry, right? In that context. But he might not have done that if he was doing the same ministry in Tallahassee, Florida. Does that make sense? When we're trying to sort that out, one of the things we need to think about relative to love is if, we'll, what we, if our brother is grieved by what you blank do in some situation— you're not walking in love. So how do you manage that? Well, this, the pastor says a couple things. The first is, don't flaunt it, whatever you do. So if you think that you're free in Christ to wear pants or drink whiskey or um, like the bears or—sorry, um, that's not morally consequential. Um, a, a, a really big one right now is um, COVID stuff, how strict or not strict you are in um, like COVID protectionism, right? is a big one. Um, this can be true in public policy, too. There's all kinds of areas where this is the case. And the first, if you believe something, don't flaunt it. Like, don't, don't say it in the face of other people. Now, it, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't talk about it. You should be fully convinced in your own mind, but you don't talk about it in terms of, like, what you're going to do. You talk about the thing with other believers in terms of the, the idea, the thing itself, right? So if, if you think that you're free in Christ to drink a certain kind of alcohol, somebody else doesn't think you can if you're a Christian, you, you don't go, well, I drink whiskey all the time. What you say is, that's interesting that you think that. What do you think the Bible says? What does Scripture actually say about alcohol? What does it say? Most people don't know. They know that you're not supposed to get drunk. That's all they know. They don't know there's verses that says wine has the benefit of making the heart glad, and that's talked about as a good thing in the wisdom literature, for example which brings up whether or not we have a doctrine of being buzzed, right? There's other stuff that's—like, there's a place where, where Paul tells Timothy to take some for his stomach. That is, there are medicinal uses for alcohol that are clearly beneficial and even obligatory, right? So, like, the Bible says more about this. So you talk about that, not whether or not you like grainstone or something. You know what I mean? All right. The second thing is, it's just discretion, right? You don't just not flaunt it, but you think about whether or not it's going to get back to people, whether it's likely it's going to get back to people, in both how you talk— and in how you act, right? There's a, a, there's a verse that says, 
um, you know what? If you're free in Christ to do it, you know, you can keep that just between your faith between yourself and God. Blessed is the person who isn't condemned by what they approve. You see, there's a level which this functions on the basis of just what you say, not even just what you do. It affects our speaking and our doing. And then lastly, he says, sometimes you, maybe you should just not do it at all. Maybe the fact that you want to do something in Christ means that you shouldn't do it at all, right? I, I've talked with Manohar about eating bacon here in America. He doesn't do it. And I don't—I'm not really sure. He's, he's an Indian. He's a minister on our, on our team. I'm not sure if it's because he still kind of feels like pigs are filthy animals and you shouldn't eat them, period, and he's doing it because that's what he thinks. Or he knows that when he goes to ministers in India, at any place, somebody could ask him, hey, Bidar, you've been living in America, you've been eating pigs? And he'd have, to, he'd have to tell him the truth. And he doesn't want to have to tell him yes. So he just doesn't do it for the sake of hypothetical people he may minister to in the future. And what the apostle is saying is that's a perfectly noble thing to do. To just not do something you're completely free to do because of how it will affect other people. Because frankly, the work of God and those people are more important than that free thing. There's, there's 10,000 pleasures in the world. If you're that bound to that one, you can't give up. What does that really say about us and about you, right? All right, we need to move on because we're already out of time. Two is we, we need to build up to strength. We not, need to not just trip up weakness. We need to build up to strength. One of the things that's really important to recognize is one of the reasons why legalism is a terrible thing is because it stunts the human conscience and therefore also destroys the work of God. You see, if we just say, if all we say is, don't let the weak stumble— and then everybody who's weak in faith and, and lives restrictively is like, well, then you can't do this. Well, you can't do that. Well, you can't do that. If we just live by that, what that means is what's going to happen is we're just going to regress to the most anxious person in all of our behaviors and actions. And Christianity is going to be about legalism. It's going to be about um, control. It's going to be about anxiety. It's going to be about being restrictive. And everyone's going to hate it. And there's going to be no joy in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> And nobody's going to be quoting verses like Galatians 1.5. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. There's, or there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit of life has let us free from the law of sin and death. Right? We will lose the centrality of Christian freedom, which Paul is preaching about throughout the entire book of Romans. And so what he does is he calls people living by the restrictive principle, he calls their faith weak on purpose. So that even though their weakness is restrictive to the freedom of the strong, it's also labeled as weak. That is defective. Like, it shouldn't stay there. And he, he specifically attaches it to what you might call the restrictive principle, which functions something like this. If you read the Bible, people do stuff wrong that God says is wrong. And then God gets upset about it, and he exerts his wrath. And the entire story of the Bible is God saying, hey, you guys, don't do all these terrible things. And people going, well, I'm just going to do it. And then he gets upset, and there's just round and around it goes, right? And he's like, and so like, therefore, like, the main thing people do is sin and wreck each other and wreck the relationship with God. So mainly, the most productive thing we could possibly do is think about God relative to what are sins and what we should not do. And so we think similar to—it's like Christian critical theory, right? It's like how— what can be problematized if we think about it negatively relative to its relationship with God? What in human life is complicit in sin in some way and therefore should be rejected? And what you find out is the same thing we found out with critical theory in academic circles. If you get good at it, everything. If you, if you really get good at problematizing things about how they're implicitly related and how therefore— um, 
they create complicity with some other injustice somewhere that's going on in some power structure. Literally everything is problematized. That's the th same thing is true in Christian legalism, right? If you think about God and everything that's good about God and how everything in the world could be complicit in relationship to sin, what will be left that is not complicit to sin? Nothing! Nothing! And so therefore, legalism will just progress and progress and progress and progress, and we'll all keep trying to serve God better by doing less. And we will destroy the entire concept of freedom in Christ. And we will destroy what it means to be a steward, which is for God to free us to follow our own discernment through wisdom and maturity to do what's best rather than be constrained by rules. And what it means is it will stunt the growth of our conscience because instead of laboring through in our own hearts towards God with, with purity and a sound conscience and sincere faith to figure out what really is love in a particular situation— we will instead be memorizing pedantically man-made rules that emphasizes one thing about God's character that overwhelms everything and controls us in such a way is that we do very little positive good. And we think the main way we serve our neighbor is what we don't do and we tell them they shouldn't do. And it'll defile every— it'll destroy everyone's faith. And psychologically what it means is it'll suck us all to the most anxious person. And those people will become the pastors. Because they're the most godly. They're, they're, the, they're the people that are the most spiritually serious. Because they're willing to live in, under such restriction that they do nothing enjoyable. When First Thessalonians says explicitly, God has given us everything in creation for our what? Our self-denial? No, for our enjoyment. For our pleasure. Remember, Jesus is the God who died so that you could enter something he called a heaven, which is meant to involve pleasures forevermore. Psalm said, There are many pleasures we forego to discipline ourselves because we're such undisciplined and voluptuous creatures and we create so much harm in how we indulge ourselves. And so we need discipline because, because of the flesh, because of sin, right? That doesn't mean those pleasures are wrong or bad. So, that's one of the reasons why Paul doesn't use the word conscience in Romans 14. He uses it in other places in really important ways. But you can see that that's what he's getting at when he says this. Something is unclean automatically if you think it is. See what he's saying? He says, if you partake in something that you think is unclean, it's unclean for you. Why? Why is that true? Isn't it either clean or not clean? Aren't pigs either good or bad? Isn't whiskey either okay or not? Like, like, why is, why is it unclean for you? Right? And the answer is because defilement happens in the conscience through lying to yourself and to God. And so if you really think something is defiling, like it's going to hurt you, that it's going to cause you to sin, that it's, that you shouldn't do it, that you think it's wrong, that you think God disapproves of it, and then you do it anyway, you are doing something you think is wrong, and you can never do something in faith that you think is wrong. And so therefore, to you, it's unclean because of what you really believe, because of your conscience. Right? When what has to happen is you need to turn to God and try to learn from Him and let Him develop you so as to order your conscience rightly, so as either to confirm what you believe in your conscience that you shouldn't do it, or free your conscience so that you can do it conscientiously. 
And that process is one of the most fundamental processes to faith. So fundamental that Paul is saying that if you interrupt that, if you put a stumbling block in front of that process, you are destroying a person and the work of God. You see what he's saying? He's saying everything, everything is contingent on that. On whether or not faith means you listen to your conscience. You offer it to God for him to inform it, and you obey it entirely. You do what you think is right, and you don't do what you think is wrong. That that is faith expressed lovingly. And when that happens, when you live by that, what happens is you're constantly being challenged in what you think is right and wrong, which forces you to grow emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. It forces you to deal with past traumas that are constricting your mind and not allowing you to live in certain freedoms. It forces you to face the future and what's really going to happen. If, like, it forces you to grow. It forces you to mature. It forces you to be mutually edified, built up. Right? And so, I don't have any, much time to go through this. Paul says this in, in um, First Timothy. He says, the goal of this command, that is the command to understand the gospel, is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Right? He's breaking that down categorically. So if you wanted a diagram, it would look something like this. Verses 1 through 14 in chapter 14 here, he's like, we live, all of us, to the Lord. Everything we're doing is to the Lord with a pure heart, right? So we have a single heart towards God. It's to the Lord. Everything in our life, everything is to the Lord. A pure heart, right? We want to do what's right. We want to be, be honest to God with what things really are. So we are believing toward God with a good conscience and with a lot of devotion, with sincere faith. And if we are pointing those things to God, he will mature us in such a way as that we'll really love each other rather than be divided and full of enmity, right? And when you work this out and how this works in human experience with God, this then can be done with the full freedom of the gospel on one side, intention with the devout discipline of growing in the spiritual discipline so we'll grow strong enough to love. So that our freedom will be an expression of stewardship, doing the good call God has called us to do, rather than divisive indulgence, allowing the flesh to grow so that we will flaunt what we do to everybody else and create a cycle of flaunting and judging, condemnation and contempt. Does that make sense? By understanding how God wants us to grow in conscience and have a good conscience for him, by understanding how we affect each other, and by forcing ourselves to be honest to God, realize that, that means we have to be honest to ourselves and our conscience, and realize that that process of faith has to be fostered in other people and how we act towards them. That is the goal. In everything we do, we are trying to foster that in each other. Peace with each other, and the upbuilding of people's faith towards God in that way. If we do that, we will be able to express our freedom in Christ, we will grow in discipline spiritually, and we will grow in strength in our faith. And we will be able to experience righteousness. Remember Jesus said, blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Why? Because he will be filled. Right? Peace. We'll really have unity and be able to love each other. And last but not least— Joy in the Holy Spirit. And those who live in such things are approved by God, and in most cases, approved of by humanity. God, as we um, spend some time thinking about this and worshiping and trying to respond, please help us to believe. 
Please help us to take seriously how we're supposed to mature, how we're supposed to help others to mature, what we should refrain from, from and what we should give ourselves wholeheartedly to. Help us to grow in meekness, in discretion, in prudence, and help us in loving you in these ways, learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have